What's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Lab Audio Inventory. Welcome to Athletic Lab's Sport Performance Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Brian Mann. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ivan. I appreciate it. Yeah, cool. Uh, before we start, can you talk a little bit about your background, education, and experience? I know that you have a very interesting story about how you got into an SSC world, so can you expand on this one? Yeah, so uh, I got into strength conditioning by a couple of, uh, of modes, um, and it was just being in the right place at the right time each time. Uh, you know, it's no uh, secret for those who've seen me or a picture of me. I've got a large red birthmark on my face, and I was... Uh, picked on by uh, by not only uh, classmates but family members, and I thought if I got bigger and stronger than them, they would leave me alone. And uh, yeah, right. yeah, that that really is how it started. And then uh, at age uh, between thirteen and fourteen, the summer before my freshman year in high school, uh, I went to a strength and conditioning camp, and there was three people running it: the guy named Russ Ball, who was front office for an NFL team called the Green Bay Packers. At the time, he was the head strength coach for the Kansas City Chiefs. Right. Uh, another person named Kirk Wolfolk, who I believe is still a Navy, and a third person named Rob Rogers, who's been all over the the place um, uh, with his career. Those three guys sat down and talked to me, and I didn't know strength and conditioning was a thing until that point. And uh, at that moment, I decided I want to become a strength coach. And then you fast forward five years, six years, seven years, somewhere around in there. Uh, I am skipping one class to study for another and uh, sitting in front of the Taco Bell that's in the stadium because I had unlimited <laughs> diet Pepsi to keep you know, keep me awake to study for uh, the test. And one of my friends from the football team would happen to walk up and talk to me. And I had just won a big powerlifting meet like a week or two beforehand. And uh, Fitz was – he and I were conversing. And uh, Rick Perry, that strength coach, comes up and – uh, Fitz looked at Rick and he's like, "Hey, you know, this guy was a powerlifter. He just won a won a big meet." And uh, Rick's like, "Oh, well, you're big enough, you know." We started talking. He's like, "Well, I can't pay you anything, but do you want a job?" And I said, "Sure." And at that moment, I closed my books, went up, and um, within three weeks, I had my own teams. And the rest is history. You know, it was just the process of uh, searching for answers from that point on. Awesome. <laughs> That's that's really awesome. I, I mean, I always listen to your podcast, and every time you say uh, it's only about being at the right place at the right time, <laughs> I wish I I am at the right place at the right time. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I was I was lucky, and I, I absolutely know that I was lucky. There, there's far smarter, more qualified, and better for this type of thing uh, people than me. Uh, it's just they didn't happen to be hungover on that day and skipping one class to study for another. Uh, if it would have been somebody else, so you, you know, I wouldn't be the one here on the podcast. Yeah. Okay, so let's dive into the questions. Uh, you are one of the go-to guys when it comes to velocity-based training. And uh, so for introduction, can you tell us what it is actually for those that are maybe not familiar with it yet? Yeah, you know, velocity-based training is probably not the best word for it. Maybe velocity-based strength or resistance training mm-hmm. or something. But uh, VBT, three letters, just kind of rolls off the tongue. <laughs> uh, 
the uh, the the basics behind it is utilization of velocity to dictate the load of the barbell, uh, and, and that's it. And you know, uh, the way that I do it is based off of um, the laws of averages for the big rock lifts that we do. Uh, and by we, I mean whenever I was part of the strength staff for the University of Missouri, you know the main exercises that we focused on: squat, bench, and deadlift. And then we did it with the Olympic lifts. And basically what we had found was that by utilizing velocity to dictate load and velocity as feedback, we enhanced our results as a team. Uh, Where most teen college uh, American football teams only have progression of speed and power for a year and power looking at watts, not just height of vertical jump. uh, We had it for three and, um, you know, there may have there been other means that we needed to, uh, yeah, to, to change to, to, to achieve greater results, yes. But uh, long story short, I got sidetracked. I'm horrible about that. I guess that's part of being a professor now is that um, you util- it's the utilization of velocity as feedback and the uh, aiding and the dictation of appropriate loads for that day for what you're trying to develop. Mm-hmm. Right. So... Why is it important to shift from the percentage-based training to uh, velocity-based training? Well, you know, I th- there's a, a few different aspects to it, uh, and I might jump around again as I, I normally do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the the first is that if you look at how a muscle produces force, right? The series right. elastic component. I'm not going parallel elastic component because mm-hmm. fascial networks, neural stuff. I, I don't necessarily get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do know that it plays a role. Uh, yeah, I'm right. not going to try and explain something I know nothing about. <laughs> but in the series elastic component, you know, you've got those myofibrillar adaptations that we see through heavy lifting. Right. Right. You know, the increases in the uh, size of the myosin, the heavy chain myosin, the angle of benation change, the ability of the myosin head to grab a hold of the, uh, the actin and, and withstand forces. Well, that's only part of it, right? You know, there's right. a sarcoplasmic reticulum and how it polarizes uh, the the uh, the muscle cell with the release and reabsorption of calcium. Uh, there is, uh, you know, uh, the, on the neural aspect, uh, Hinneman size principle, right. you know, with uh, how you're recruiting the fibers. And then there's one, there's rate coding. Right. And uh, rate coding is basically how fast the signal is sent down and in, in sequence. And VBT is really enhancing rate coding. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you put that on top of the feedback of velocity. Uh, just you know, whenever you tell somebody, was this good? Was it not? And they have the feedback to know how to tr- what they need to do to improve. Well, things tend to happen, and uh, that's why I think that it's effective. And why is it effective beyond additional just regular strength training? Well, because you're only hitting one component right. whenever you're right. dealing with regular strength training, and also you have no feedback. Uh, you, you, well, you do have feedback. You have the feedback of the coach saying something, but this is completely objective, and it, mm-hmm. this is in a manner where the the athlete can understand. They understand if uh, you got eight five and I got eight eight, I beat you. So then you're trying to get point eight nine the next time. Right. Uh, right. So that's that's where its effectiveness lies is within the feedback and within the uh, the uh, coming about a different. Uh, uh, a different physiological pathway to enhance force production. Awesome. awesome. So, so, can you name and describe the traits that are that are usually developed utilizing uh, BBT? 
Yeah, so the way that I break it down, and you know, I, I was talking with Dan Baker about this whenever I was down in Australia a couple of weeks ago, is that he and I usually, we're saying pretty close to the same thing. We come out at different points, but uh, I utilize what I call zones. Mm-hmm. And I utilize zones because whenever you're dealing with 530 athletes, you got to be able to break things down really simple. Right. So with the zones, it's back squat, bench press, and deadlift are the exercises that we use to create the zones. Uh, and we have the one how I break it down is zero to point five meters per second, so roughly eighty percent is absolute strength. Uh, 0. 0.5 to point seven five meters per second, so sixty to eighty percent roughly, is accelerative strength. Uh, Forty to sixty percent, and we you know, we really got the thirty to sixty percent bleeds quite a bit by percentage of one RM. It's not clear, but it, it clears up a lot with velocity. We've got strength, speed, and speed strength, and there's zones. Everything kind of bleeds over, so strength, speed might go up to sixty five percent, and you know whatever, and, and what have you. It right. doesn't matter. Uh, but we've got strength, speed, and speed strength. Strength, speed is 0.75 to 1.0 meters per second. That's strength and conditions of speed. And then we've got speed strength, which is uh, 1.0 to 1.25, 1.3, somewhere around there, meters per second. Uh, and then faster than that is uh, what is known as starting strength, and that's mm-hmm. the ability to uh, to rapidly overcome inertia. Now, with accelerative st- absolute strength, we all get Right. Okay. We understand that. That's how much weight you can lift. Yeah. Accelerative strength is accelerating through a load. Uh, in the States, it's easiest to talk about like an offensive and defensive lineman battling for the line of scrimmage. Uh, rugby scrum may or may not be a good uh, uh, analogy for that. I'm just we don't get rugby over here. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> I, I can't really you know, I, I've seen it. Once every few years, probably when the All Blacks are playing in the World Cup is whenever it comes on TV in the States. Uh, I don't watch a whole lot of TV, so I haven't gotten to watch a whole lot of rugby. (laughs) Uh, And then we already went over starting strength, strength speed. It's just uh, strength speed and speed strength to me are interesting because peak power is basically in the middle. And then you're hitting with a little bit more load for strength speed. You're hitting a little bit more on the speed side for speed strength. But the job of both of them is to increase peak power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's just, you know, it, it's not I, – I, there's been some convert, – uh, uh, not controversial, but some uh, differences in results that have been seen by training for peak power. Uh, or absolute strength, and there's mm-hmm. been things that have found to be no different. Uh, so people are saying, well, peak power doesn't work. Well, you know, I don't use peak power. I kind of hit it from one side or the other. I It's kind of like I'm overshooting on the load or I'm overshooting on the speed. And I think the adaptations are going to be a little bit different to, as a result right. of that. Do I know? No, I don't. Uh, but, uh, you know, guys like Robert Roman, Yuri Verhoshansky, uh, Tomasa Jean, Lazar Baroga, uh, Boris Jadovsev, uh, Jindaka, who's all names who I know I have just butchered. They've all talked about things like strength speed or speed strength and vo- velocity load or load velocity. So uh, if they're talking about it and they're all agreeing on either speeds or percentages of 1RM uh, and how everything inter- interrelates. Uh, and Carmelo Bosco, I don't know how I forgot to put his name in there. And Antoli Bandarjuk. If these guys are all agreeing, then who am I to argue on that sort of thing? I'm just going to go with it and try and build on it. Right. So have you got an idea for exact that numbers uh, when it comes yeah. to zones? 
Great question. So it came as a result of a few different things. One is at Missouri State and at Mizzou, uh, two of the schools that I were at, we recorded percent, you know, 1RMs, mm-hmm. and we looked at the velocity and how they corresponded. That lined up pretty well with uh, the stuff that was from – Oh, gosh. I should have uh, – if you would have asked me this, I would have looked it up. But there's – you know, it's either Robert Roman. Uh, there's definitely some in the Weightlifting Fitness for All Sports by Jean and Baroga. Uh-huh. Uh, there's some stuff by Veroshansky. But they're talking about the speeds and how they line up for the different traits. And those happen to line up with percentages of 1RM mm-hmm. that I got from the strength continuum that Buddy Morris told me was from uh, – from Carmelo Bosco, uh, he had some mm-hmm. articles translated and uh, from Italian, and you know it was that zero to fifteen percent was neurological. You couldn't affect that. Fifteen right. to forty was starting strength. Forty to sixty was non-quantifiable. Sixty to eighty uh, strength, uh, accelerated strength. Eighty percent plus absolute strength, which falls in line with a lot of the other stuff. So basically, it was the looking at the interrelation of all of those intensities. For the squats and deadlifts that were the core of our program, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and I guess I need to, to qualify that by saying back squat. Sometimes, uh, you know, to me, my background in powerlifting, uh, there is no squat but back squat. So, um, you know, that that's just uh, that's just that. Now, uh, do other exercises, you know, like uh, the stuff from uh, Sanchez Medina and Gonzalez Medillo. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever they're looking at stuff like the bench pull and some of the different exercises like that, and the, their velocities are obviously very different. And uh, I, uh, this is my fault because I never really specified uh, because I thought I came at it from my own perspective, my own biases that what are you going to do other than squat bench and deadlift and then Olympic lifts? <laughs> right, got right. Their own velocities. You know, well, why? Who who cares about an overhead squat, a front squat, a bench <laughs> pull, a bent over row, a pull down, uh, any of these other things? So, of course, they're going to change because of the needs of stability, uh, deceleration of the barbell. Because if you maximally ex- – I tried doing front squats with velocity. And it was not a good idea. As you can see, I've got a beard. Uh, this was early on in my career. I've got a scar right here. Yeah, I see. Nasty-ass one because I was a graduate assistant with medic- without medical insurance. Threw the bar like 100 and 110 kilos, something like that, like dynamic work. Popped it up, cracked the bottom of my chin open, oh, my bit Lord. off a little tiny bit of my tongue, chipped a tooth. And uh, you don't maximally accelerate light loads. You've got to slow them down on front squats. Yeah. So, of course, you know, different exercises that get way far away from that, uh, they're going to have different slant slopes. Mm-hmm. They're going to have some different uh, numbers. And then uh, bench press. Why did we, with the squat being at 0.261 meters per second for terminal velocity, mm-hmm. bench press being about 0.17 meters per second terminal velocity for 1RM, like why do we group those two together? Uh, simplicity's sake. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's another question people that I often ask. Yeah, uh, I've never seen anybody play a sport on their hands. So whenever people walk out on the pitch, on the court, or on the field, on their hands and play the sport on their hands rather than on their feet, then I'll place a greater emphasis on the bench press. Right. Awesome. So how would you put those numbers into perspective of uh, in-season and off-season training? <clears throat> nope. That depends on the person's individual philosophy. Uh, for me, yeah, for uh, you, yeah, for me in preseason, 
I'll be completely honest. I'll use velocity loss is the only time that I'm doing any anything velocity related on strength exercises, and that's only for my top end guys. What do I mean by top end? The people that are unbelievably trained and unbelievably gifted. Uh, those are the people who I would look to use velocity loss on strength work for. Otherwise, it's all about learning how to grind to maximum motor recruitment. Um, for my preseason stuff, whenever I'm looking at power, we'll be looking at strength speed or speed strength uh, on the squat, bench, and deadlift. And then, of course, we'll have minimum thresholds on the Olympic lifts because we found that uh, if whenever we didn't utilize a velocity threshold, that Olympic lifts weren't training, uh, uh, transferring over for our power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like, why do it if it's, you know, if that's what the goal is and that's the intended purpose and it didn't work. Um then preseason, you know, preseason, whenever I'm utilizing power, it's strength, speed, or speed, strength. And then in season, I typically look at, uh, you know, maintenance of power for me is what is king for the guys that are playing who are already strong enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Guys that are weak, that, and that's why they're not playing, of course we're doing additional strength loads. But for the guys that uh, are playing, uh, playing significantly, uh, we're ut- more utilizing the power, the lower end of the strength speed stuff. So we'll still have definitely strength retention hitting around probably 70% of one RM. And, um, we're utilizing the velocity to make sure that we're using the appropriate load to not overtrain them. You know, if you got, uh, let's say that, that, uh, they usually, usually utilize, uh, snaps or plays for an American football game. For somebody who gets 10 snaps a game versus somebody who gets 80 snaps a game, there's a lot more accumulated fatigue with the person mm-hmm. who gets 80 snaps a game. Right. With the American football culture, typically the day after the game is whenever they're coming in and squatting, cleaning, doing their heavier stuff. Why then would we not give an appropriate load mm-hmm. uh, for the 80 snaps versus the 20 snaps? You're going to be at different recovery levels due to different fatigue. Uh, so in season, I typically go off of power, but like I said, everything needs context. You know, right. Right. not everything that I do is velocity. You know, there's a lot of stuff that is either strength or special exercise as opposed to velocity. You know, I kind of think that I went wrong on some of the spots with velocity because um, basically, whenever we take if you look at Bonderchuk's classification of exercises, you know, he has the GPE, SPE, SDE, and competitive exercise. Most strength training movements are GPE, general right. general preparation. Totally. Whenever you get them to transfer more, that's whenever they're SDE. So basically, by utilizing velocity, we took a squat and made it an SDE exercise, just like Olympic lifts because of their velocity. They are SDE. Mm-hmm. So then I think we need to look at uh, additional special exercises, and that's why we leveled off after a few years uh, in our development. So you know everything just needs context, and uh, right. you know velocity is not the end all be all. I think it's a great tool. Uh, I absolutely love it. And I'll probably use it till the day I die. But we have to realize that um, it's not everything that there is. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. So we have uh, average measures and we have peak measures. So when should we use one over another? Peak measures should be utilized on Olympic lifts or ballistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So why? Because, well, for a few reasons. One, let's think about this for a second. With any ballistic or Olympic lift, you project the barbell into the air, you drop back underneath it. Gravity is the one that's solely in charge of the deceleration of the barbell, not you. So you can't knock gravity. It's there all the right. time anyways. It's not its fault. Right. So you're the one who's in charge of that, of getting it up to that peak velocity. And we also know that peak velocity occurs at the top of the second pole on, uh, you know, like the snatch and the clean. Uh, so if we've got this defined moment, we also know where, uh, you know, that there's that gravity is the one that's decelerating the barbell. We don't want to count it against gravity and we don't want to count it towards you. Uh, so we will go with peak velocity on there. It makes the most sense. Mean velocity is uh, best utilized in groups for times whenever you are producing force the entire time through the entire range of motion, squat, bench press, deadlift, your traditional movements. Uh, Because if you let go of that barbell at any given point, it is going to drop back down to the earth versus on a, you know, lighter loads, especially on Olympic lifts. If you let go, they're going to continue to float upwards. Um. and all the deceleration is always done by the person. Mm-hmm. So uh, on the uh, on the the, uh, the the traditional type movements. So that's how I look at it. Now there is a caveat to that with uh, like the squat jumps and things like that. Right. I still utilize mean velocity because it's easy. Uh, I've I know those numbers because I've utilized those since 1999. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't until recent years, whenever. Uh, I got gym aware that I had everything had peak velocity on it and I could track it. So I could start looking at now if I wanted, okay, we're doing squat jumps. Here's the mean velocity I want. What's the peak velocity need to be? But quite honestly, for me, it's like I know I want them around 1.1, 1.2 on a squat jump. Why do I need to look at the peak velocity for it? I've already got the answer that I want. If it's an answer somebody else wants, let them figure it out. I, I don't care. Right. So. Awesome. So would you rather look at the power or velocity measures? Let's say if you lift certain weight with 0.7 meters per second and then you add 10 kilos and it's down to 0.6 meters per second. However, this may not mean a drop in power output. And if we see a drop in velocity but not in power output, can we continue to load? I know it depends, but uh, when it's uh, one more appropriate to follow than another? Well, it, you know, it, it's everything needs context and everything needs, uh, you know, you, you've got to know the goal. If the goal of the training is to hit peak power, guess what you should do? Train at the low that peak power occurs at. Uh, if you're trying to stay in with like a percentage of 1RM mm-hmm. or you're trying to look at uh, the adaptation of training, uh, you might be best off of looking at uh, the velocity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's... Uh, hopefully he doesn't mind. Uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll save that for for something more private until I know that he doesn't mind. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's there's been some stuff that's out there that looks at the relationship of velocity to a a uh, performance result. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do stuff like, well, with some of our throwers, mm-hmm. uh, whenever they had higher speeds on their main lifts, and we just kept the same load, and we just we're going, you know, we know that you should be between 0.80 and uh, 1.0 meters per second this weight. The days when their speeds were up, their throws were up. The days when their throws were down, their speeds were down. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it, you know, who knows what exactly is going on there, but there's definitely a correlation between the two. Right. And you might lose that if you're going for peak power. 
I'm not sure. But, you know, like I said, everything need, needs context. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I hate to, to, you know, beat a dead horse. And if I go down somewhere, I'll probably confuse myself. I totally agree. Um, so let's go to Olympic weightlifting. You mentioned it quite a few times now. And uh, what you, what is your approach to Olympic weightlifting movements and velocity-based training? Uh, do you utilize velocity-based training with Olympic weightlifting movements? Regardless of what athletes are you dealing with? Well, with the team sport athletes, I absolutely use velocity. And I use it as a cutoff. And uh, I think I, I re- briefly touched on it a minute ago that we did not see a correlation, uh, well, a, any predictive ability of improvements in Olympic lifts to improvements in our vertical jump and, and in terms of our power mm-hmm. uh, whenever we, we were um, analyzing that. So whenever we gave velocity as a, a threshold, as a cutoff point, as if you didn't, you had to move beyond the certain velocity to for the lift to count, then we did see a transfer. Mm-hmm. Uh, each Olympic lift has got its own velocity. And for some sports, height actually matters so that they'll have to do a different velocity based off of their height. And of course, if you jump up tall enough, uh, it, it will matter then. Now, interesting enough, as compared to the squat, bench, and deadlift, over about two meters or about six six ish in height, uh, it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. right? For the velocity zones, but you hit a spike whenever you hit that. Now, the reason is, I think I don't know. So this is uh, some some people with PhDs are going to poo poo me for this. <laughs> whenever you have got Who's going to have a, a, a wider stance on a squat? Somebody who's short or somebody who's tall? Yeah, right. They self-select uh, width of their foot stance, which negates the length of the femur, mm-hmm. and that's uh, in the uh, because of you know going out wider in the frontal plane decreases range of motion in the sagittal plane. Right. Height doesn't change that much. Now, mm-hmm. why is it that at that magic about six foot six inch mark, squat racks are fixed width? Mm-hmm. You those guys that are taller than that, they've hit their they've hit the limits of the rack, so they have to keep their feet in wider, and that puts them through a, a larger range of motion. That's what I think is going on. Mm-hmm. If they choose to squat and do whatever outside of the rack, I don't think there's there's any issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were not talking about that. We were talking about Olympic lifts. So let's get back to that. Yeah, uh, height depends whenever somebody's more proficient with mm-hmm. the Olympic lifts because their feet stay underneath their hips and hip width versus stance width is, is, is for like a squad is tremendously different. Now they've got to be honestly can, from what I've seen with college football players with some data that I collected with a former intern of mine, when he was a head strength coach at a local university working mm-hmm. on his masters for guys that have just got, Oh, I hate to say this, but just maybe a step below reasonable technique. I guess we call it okay technique. Um, it definitely wasn't shit, but it wasn't you know it wasn't good either. Uh, those guys, it did not matter. One RM velocities and the slopes were about the same, regardless of the height, excluding the super tall guys. Mm-hmm. So it didn't matter if you were uh, five nine or six four. I apologize. I'm not good with meters to be able to just spit that out. Uh, those there was not a significant difference between the one RM terminal velocities, so you can basically use one cutoff uh, to go. Now, 
why do I use a cutoff? Well, I think that people, what's the goal on Olympic lifts is typically to move the, the greatest amount of weight. There and you go. sometimes whenever the uh, athlete is not an Olympic weightlifter, their mm-hmm. technique alters to be able to achieve that. So this gives us a alternative focus to be able to help us in maintaining technique. Right. Could it be that we just, everybody on staff was a shit Olympic lifting coach or shit weightlifting coach? That's absolutely possible. But we're not going to make those mistakes on purpose, having a $30 million a year budget riding upon it. Not for us, meaning for the football team. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, God, we weren't making $30 million a year. <laughs> no, not, not at all. So I don't want anybody to think that. Think that you know, that it's one of those sunshine and rainbows things that people think as an undergraduate when they come out for strength and conditioning. Right. Uh, but uh, utilizing those peak velocities as the cutoffs allowed us to maintain technique, and mm-hmm. then thus we had a transfer back over to the jumps. That wasn't the strongest transfer to power enhancement, but uh, it was significant, and it did go into the uh, into a significant F change uh, in a, a logistic regression. Right. So uh, you were talking about the full weightlifting moments because mm-hmm. um, because there is a I think that there is a problem with it because one of the greatest things with VBT is that it provides you with the feedback yeah. and let's say you're about your athlete is about to do some clean heavy clean or or something and uh, based on uh, gym aware or whatever device you have uh, you will you will say. Okay, please generate more power or uh, do it faster and stuff like that. And he will try to do that, and all of a sudden his technique will be off. And then, right. So that's my concern about using VBT and uh, and uh, Olympic weightlifting movements because, like you said, for Olympic weight lift, uh, for Olympic lifts, uh, the main the main goal is to lift the uh, lift the most weight. So. Right. That's. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. No. Um, the thing that I always approach that with is that, uh, at least in this country, mm-hmm. people in my position are called coach. Mm-hmm. The gym aware is not called coach. Right. It's my job to teach technique. It's not the piece of equipment. Right. So if we need to alter loads or or what have you, or if we need to change the velocity based off of an individual, we'll absolutely do that. You know. Uh, Uh, people tend to think that these zones are written in stone. No, absolutely yeah. not. You know, yeah. uh, the zones, the cutoffs and everything, these are genera- uh, generalities. These are a starting point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also have to realize that uh, specific populations are going to have changes, right? Uh, you know, weightlifters are going to be able to achieve lower velocities on the clean than, uh, than a football player or a basketball player. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, Uh, in the in the states, you know, we've got for the for NCAA regulations, we've got no more than 20 hours a week is allowed to be devoted towards the sport. Mm-hmm. For the sport of American football, that usually means about 18 hours a week are devoted to practice. Two hours a week are devoted to weight, weight training. Right. Their neuromuscular efficiency lies in playing their sport. Where does the Olympic lifters? Mm. All 20 hours are spent in the weight room. Mm-hmm. So their neuromuscular efficiency is going to be uh, placed in the weight room. 
power lifters, same thing. They can achieve much lower velocities. So if somebody's got one of those backgrounds, maybe they were an Olympic weightlifter, maybe they were a power lifter all through high school, and they just happen to be good at football, and they got to a scholarship because they happen to be good at the sport. Right. But their neuromuscular efficiency actually lies in something else. Of course, the profile is going to be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everything needs context. So these generalities of the zones. Uh, they can absolutely be changed. And, uh, you know, to the point of does uh, I guess I also need to go out there that uh, all the velocities that I mentioned were caught in um, the I believe most people call it the power position, you know, mm-hmm. basically in that quarter squat athletic position. They weren't full catch cleans and snatches right. and, and, and things like that and jerks. Uh, so I guess I need to throw that that disclaimer out there. But, you know, you you're called coach. You coach the technique, the gym aware, or the you know whatever velocity device that you're u- utilizing helps you to alter the load. Hmm. That's that's all that it's for. You know you've got to be the one coaching. Right, I thoroughly agree. Um, everyone is hyped up when it comes to concentric part of the lift with velocity based training. But what about eccentric portion and quick absorption and reproduction of the force? I think it's very important, and that's something that I know I overlooked for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently in the past, gosh, 18 months, two years now, I've gotten into more force plate type stuff mm-hmm. and looking at uh, the eccentrics that are on there. And my good friend Cal Dietz obviously talks a lot about it in triphasic. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, the adaptations that are, are there, we, we get lost on concentric because we watch weights fly up. We mm-hmm. see concentric velocities popping up. Eccentrics are obviously very important. Uh, there's a, a young man at uh, East Tennessee State who uh, I don't know if it's came out in it yet. John Waggle, Waggle, uh, I might have said his last name wrong, but he's got a review out on accentuated eccentric training mm-hmm. and talking about the impacts that it has. And that's uh, something I think is often overlooked. I, we see weights move up we see jumps move up but how those things are derived are are very very different and the eccentric component is something that we've overlooked and we will see huge improvements in speed change of direction and jump abilities probably one time as a result of adding in eccentrics now why do i say one time because the only time you're going to see a huge jump is whenever you're very very deficient in things right so for instance by uh women's soccer team we just put out an abstract that maybe I'll turn into an article, maybe I won't. Uh, it was for the Australian Strength Conditioning Association. Mm-hmm. It's like, if I'm going down there to present, I'm going to go ahead and get some uh, some abstracts published as well while I'm there. <laughs> and we had uh, five or six soccer girls okay. that trained with me the whole summer. They were all highly, I would say, highly trained. They've been training with me for three years, mm-hmm. uh, pretty much year-round. I thought, you know what, Cal's my buddy. He's smart. Let's try this. Mm-hmm. So I, we, our soccer coach only wanted, uh, only cared about the beep test. So we did no agility training <laughs> at all. All we did was, you know, the uh, aerobic capacity type stuff. Right. Uh, maybe some of the the Euro fit, as Dan calls it, and uh, we just bashed the hell out of them, you know, on that that route. For agility, we did two repetitions of an agility test as a pre-test. We did two repetitions of an agility test as a post-test. No other agility work in between. And we did triphasic for the resistance training. Right. This team saw an average of a quarter of a second 
off of their agility test, mm-hmm. which was the Pro Agility 5105 shuttle. It's got uh, eye test. It's got like 10 different names. Mm-hmm. To me, that just showed how my, you know concentrically biased I was, probably because of my, my bias from powerlifting. Right. Uh, all I cared about was the concentric and didn't care about the eccentric. And then, holy cow, whenever I had this huge eccentric loading phase on there they saw all these improvements in agility mm-hmm. now we didn't have force plates then to look and see how did their eccentric rate of force development or eccentric power mm-hmm. uh, we we didn't look at that all we looked at was the change of direction and we know from some papers by uh uh spieri and nymphius mm-hmm. dealing with women's basketball the role that eccentric right. plays on so I'm very, very confident in that that was the reason. It wasn't anything about they were magically different on the second day versus the first. Right. It was the fact that they could better withstand force. Mm-hmm. So they are also important. Would you say that, that they are also important when, uh, I mean, eccentric portion, when assessing, let's say, readiness uh, with jumps? Because athletes will try to cheat just to get the numbers you want. Absolutely. Yeah. So I always caution people whenever they're looking at counter movement jump that if they're going to use something as simple as a jump mat that they only get one attempt. Mm -hmm. So they don't have that second or third that they can alter their strategy. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right, man. That's a a downside. So the only times that I would, uh, if I want to use counter movement jump height, I'm only going to give them one, one go at it. And I'm also going to have other variables that I look at. So if I, if you don't have force plates, but you've got a gym aware or some other device, uh, some of the accelerometers do this. That'll tell you what was the counter movement depth, what was the eccentric RFD, what was the concentric RFD. Right. You know what? You know, let's make sure that we are controlling for as many other areas. You can maintain the some same jump height with a lower peak velocity by simply going down deeper on your jump. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's. If somebody does just one jump, they can absolutely do it. But if they've taken multiples, they're, they're, there's a possibility that they're watering down their results. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you, is there such a thing uh, that you have to earn to utilize VBT yeah, as you an know, athlete? That's, that's the way that we approach things um, because you'd, you've got to earn the right to do it because – Things like velocity make it really easy to dog, right? It's like, oh, well, I don't want my dog uh, go lazy, be lazy with. Um, because if everything is based off of your previous repetition and previous set performance, mm-hmm. you can utilize lower load by just kind of easing off the gas a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, But if you make it something that they've got to earn the right to do, they're more likely to put uh, more effort into it. And, uh, you know, one of the areas that I, I failed to mention earlier when we were talking about velocity and the, the reasons why it works is we've got to not just look at everything from a, a physiological standpoint. We need to look right. at it from a psychological standpoint because the brain governs the body. And there's something called self-determination theory from like DC and Ryan. And that's basically moving from extrinsic to intrinsic motivation mm-hmm. that they're better off and they're going to get better results if they're doing something because they want to. So I'm going to put more effort out if I want to move faster, if I want to achieve the next thing. If this is put up there as a goal that I want to achieve because I'm lifting with this thing and everybody knows that I made it whenever I'm using this, that whenever we can do that and take it away from having to, uh, you know, use the carrot more than using the stick 
from that sort of mentality right. that we can enhance results. Uh, and that's that's what it's all about, man. You know, it doesn't matter what method of training you utilize. If you can get that self-determination theory in practice, if you're making them do – if you're not making them do things, they're doing things because they want to do them, they're going to see far greater results. Right. And it it doesn't matter the mode of training that's utilized to hit them. Mm-hmm. When it comes to team sports, um, can uh, VBT help us with uh, specific position demands? I mean, in training, the traits that are needed for certain position. Yeah, I think it can. Uh, you know, for instance, a couple of uh, uh, things. I think this is where you're you're coming at it from. We threw on uh, a gym aware with an accelerometer. There's this this thing called a Mad Max, and it's basically a Right. A tackling dummy that doesn't move. <laughs> right. And we found out that offensive linemen on their first step is about 1.2 meters per second. Mm-hmm. And then whenever they make contact and they're driving through, they're at about 0.5 meters per second. Mm-hmm. So right. to fire out of their stance, they need speed strength, getting up into almost that starting strength zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to be able to drive and dominate their opponent, they need accelerative strength. If right. they're not able to dominate their opponent because their opponent's just as strong, if not stronger than them, they need absolute strength. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, if we look at a different position in the uh, football team, a wide receiver starts out often uncovered. And by uncovered, I mean that their first step, they're not making impact with another mm-hmm. player. Right. So they're going to need high levels of starting strength and being able to rapidly overcome inertia to be able to outmaneuver the next person. They're not going to need that accelerative strength. In absolute strength, they'll only need up to a certain point in how much that that influences power and speed. Right. And whenever it no longer influences that, absolute strength no longer needs to be actively enhanced. You can mm-hmm. still work on increasing it, but that shouldn't be necessarily the main goal. Right. Uh, For at some points in time, early off season GPP phase of training, absolutely, it's an area to revisit. Work on getting back up to the levels of strength, maybe a little bit beyond. But it's not something that's you know the juice worth the squeeze because you might actually slow somebody down with their their rate coding. Um, so that's just an example within one sport, you know, of American football. How you know those two different positions uh, utilize different things. Uh, now some sports are going to be more homogenous. Uh, you look at baseball, softball. Uh, these athletes, they have to run, catch a ball. They have to jump to catch the ball. They have to, you know, use forceful abduction and uh, rotation of the the torso to hit a ball. Mm-hmm. They're going to be more homogenous, most likely. Now, that's not saying that they're exactly the same, but their demands, they're going to need power, right? right? And that's going to be about it. But then you look at rugby. High levels of absolute strength in the scrum. Mm-hmm. Right. The guys that are outside that are fast, they need to be fast. So we're going to have some differences that exist within uh, each sport. And that just kind of helps you to – I mean, don't get me wrong. Coaches have been doing making these appropriate decisions years before velocity. Mm-hmm. You know, the way that I explain things is that um, – With GPS on my phone, I know within three feet of where I'm at at any given time, whenever I'm walking you know, or going anywhere. Uh, with the map, if I know where I'm at and where I want to go and what direction is north, I can get wherever I'm wanting to go. Uh, that It's not that there's anything that's right or wrong or better about the other. It's just different. Velocity is the GPS. It gives us a little bit more information. Right. The map – 
That's the percentage and exercise-based training. And there's nothing wrong with either one of them. They're both fantastic tools to utilize, mm-hmm. but they're just that. They're, they are tools. It's not everything. It doesn't replace the coach's eye, coach's intuition, or anything like that. Awesome. Um, I wanted to t- you mentioned the uh, psychological aspects of uh, velocity-based training. And in one of the articles on simplyfaster.com, uh, you mentioned one term, uh, Psychoneuroimmunology. Oh yeah. So can you talk about that term a little bit? Why is yeah, psychoneuroimmunology, man. That's uh, that that's a tough one to say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I'm you know, English is my first language, and I have I struggle saying that. <laughs> Basically, what that means is how the mi- mind uh, and the cognitive functions affect the nervous system as a, a stressor. And uh, that really came about, uh, and my knowledge of that area of study came mm-hmm. about because uh, our football team experienced a lot of injuries one year. Right. And in experiencing those injuries, fingers get pointed. And we had to figure out or attempted to figure out why did the injuries occur? Well, whenever we happened, we looked at a lot of different things and it turned out that dates happened to be very, very significant. And those dates happened to coincide with academically stressful periods as per our uh, academic coordinator. It's like it was mm-hmm. midterms. It was the uh, test week that everybody t- seemed to have uh, tests on. So why is that important for velocity? Well, it's something to realize that uh, academic stress is a stressor too. Right. Uh, and there's other things that affect the athlete and their ability to, uh, to train. And we have to take into account those stressors. And, if we, uh, and velocity is a great way to do it. Right. If they happen to be depressed on their velocity that day, if nothing else, it's worth a uh, conversation. You know, it's like, hey, what's going on? Right. Now, is it actually important to know, oh, well, your stress has caused a decrease in immune function, which has suppressed your uh, your rate coding, which has led to a decrease in lo- – no, it's not important to know that. And honestly, your athletes and most coaches aren't going to give a shit. They just <laughs> right. want to know that, you know, hey, what do I do now, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, you know, this is one of those areas that science can uh, tell us why something happened, but not necessarily uh, – they can tell us what happened. Uh, they can tell us why it happened, but it doesn't tell us what to do next. Uh-huh. And that's where the coach's intuition is. So that psychoneuroimmunology is just stress. It doesn't matter the input. Everything affects the body the same way, even though it's to a different intensity. Uh, so practice stress, academic stress, relational stress, family stress, money, you know, whatever the person can think about, whatever affects them, uh, it'll show up in terms of velocity. But realize sometimes that what you think is a stressor mm-hmm. for you, they may not care about it at all. Right. So you know, it, that, again, it goes back to you know, you've got – However many athletes, let's say you got 30 athletes, you've got an N of one 30 times. Mm-hmm. So you've got to, to to realize that, that this is just a starting point. It's not the ending point. Right. I agree. So when it comes to monitoring readiness and fatigue, what are your go-to protocols? Man, you know what? What I've gotten to with the monitoring, uh, I don't monitor like most people think about anymore mm-hmm. because, one, it's cumbersome. The athletes complain about it. And if your head coach isn't 100% on board or uh, general manager of the team, depending on the what kind of structure you're in, 
nothing's going to happen anyway. So right. what I've gone to is just looking for some KPIs, and I wouldn't call it monitoring and readiness and things like that because we're not going to be changing things based off of it, but we'll monitor the trends. Mm-hmm. And the areas that I've done are uh, the looking at the relationship of that velocity to percentage of 1RM mm-hmm. where you can basically, you know, like uh, uh, you, you mentioned um, Ladenoff. Uh, am I saying that right? Yeah. What? Mladen, Mladen, how do you say it? Yeah, Mladen. Mladen. I've heard people <laughs> say Mladen, Mladen. I don't know how to say it. I'll have to. Have, I've got to have hooked on phonics, man. Uh, but in that paper with he and uh, Eamon Flanagan. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to say Eamon. I think it's because part of me, you know, I'm part Irish. Maybe I could say say Eamon because of that. But. Uh, uh, long story short, in that paper that they did in the ASCA, the uh, research-based applications of velocity-based training, where uh, I believe it was his own work coming from him uh-huh. uh, that you know some days he was 18 kilos up, other days he was 22 kilos down as a, yeah. a, a result of the, the stressors. 80% so, up and down, yeah. Yeah, right. So looking at, at that, well, let's just follow that trend. This is not an additional thing that we've got to put on the athletes because – Questionnaires, if they think that the coach – sometimes kids lie about questionnaires. Sometimes they don't. Right. Kids can put out effort on a, a vertical jump. Sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. They can put out effort on a finger tap, uh, a uh, hand dynamometer, a sprint, or they, they cannot. Well, if you've got something that's embedded into the program, that is far, far better. Yeah. You might not be able to catch it before the training session, but you'll catch it after. And if there's a trend, and here's the one thing that I've, I've changed over the years. Uh, there's so many different things that can cause a, a what I would call a one-off to occur. Mm-hmm. Uh, one good day, one bad day. I don't react to a bad day. I don't react to a right. good day. I, I only react to trends of two or three days or more. If they're trending down for two or three days, we'll go ahead and we'll have a conversation for sure. Sometimes we might have a conversation that, that one day. It's like, hey, what's up, man? Oh, dude, I just got out of a meeting with a professor and I'm just stressed. Okay, cool. Psychoneuroimmunology, that explains it. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's that uh, you, you find out after two weeks of training that you go have the conversation that, oh, well, it's near the end of the month. Their scholarship check ran out. They don't have the money for food. Okay, well, that explains it. Uh, and then that's something that you can work with the athlete to help them to get appropriate services that they need. Um, I know every state and every country is different, but, you know, a lot of states here – well, like here in Colombia, there's something called the food pantry or the food bank. Mm-hmm. And if people lack the money to get food, they can go over there and get some for free. So right. you, know, you can put them together with that service. So I utilize it more as a uh, that monitoring post actively to uh, to drive conversations and see, you know, can we help things out uh, and also using it to build a better relationship with the athlete. Mm-hmm. Uh so I don't monitor ahead of time. I used to, it was, you know, I wanted to do HRV, jump testing, questionnaires, all these other things. But it, it led to additional workload and it also on myself and the athlete as well. And if the athlete is already overstressed and we're adding on these four extra things, taking them an extra hour a week away from their studies or whatever it is that's important to them, they're starting to hate us. Uh-huh. And then their HRV will go into the shitter because they don't want to be there and do it, not because that their training status has actually changed. So everything is just so sensitive that if we can put it into where it's not noticed, that's whenever we're going to get the magic. 
if you had, let's say you had GPS, right? And right. you knew that your warm-up was going to be the same every day. You can look to see, did the athlete move faster or slower during the warm-up? Right. Maybe if you've got this, okay, 10 yards, full sprint, go. Mm-hmm. They move faster that day, they're up. They move slower that day, they're down. Totally. So it's just... Uh, you're only limited to your imagination. And, you know, one thing that I, I've done in the past, too, was uh, we did the first four minutes of the yo-yo. There's like 10 million different yo-yo tests. <laughs> yeah, right. Really. So whichever one it was that we tested to try and help combat the anxiety that was attached to that test. We did uh, it was either three minutes or four minutes of that test during as a part of a warm up once a week. And then uh, we'd send them over to get water. And that mm-hmm. took 90 seconds. So then I got a 60. I got not only what their heart rate was during that, but a 60 second heart rate recovery. Right. Uh, by the time they got over to drink the water, whatever. But we just dropped the marker down in a polar system, and uh, that was something else that we had utilized for for a while. And then the sound system broke, and uh, nobody could hear it on the other side of the the field. So it was pretty much pointless. We ended it. <laughs> but it, whenever you can embed things like that, you're set. Right. If it's additional workload, dude, you're just putting another strain on the athlete, and they're probably not going to like it, and you're not going to get good numbers from it. Right, right. And just a follow-up question. So would you say that RP and you're, power, you're, coming, you're coming from powerlifting community, so you probably utilize RP a lot. Do you think that RP can be a good substitute for velocity-based training if, if you don't have access to velocity-based training? You know, I think you know, there's a study that came out from Mike Zordos that says yeah. that uh, it, you can. Um, I don't know, man. Uh, I don't know. Maybe in powerlifting where you know the lifts very, very well, uh, you you can do it, and people are very intuitive. They can definitely do it. But whenever you're getting to the athletic population where they know their sport, they don't know the lifts. They're novice lifters, advanced trainees in their sport. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think that you can you can do that. Uh, if you could, I would never have seen it better results with utilizing velocity than, mm-hmm. than not. Yeah. And obviously, uh, there's a problem with ob- objectivity because uh, yeah. athletes are not objective in most cases. Right. Yeah, no, they're not. And actually, even in powerlifting, there is no objectivity because every good powerlifter knows there's no 10. <laughs> there's either smoke show or miss groove. <laughs> I didn't miss the lift. It wasn't 10. It just got out of the groove. <laughs> right. You're 100% right. Okay, so just uh, for closing, can you talk a, bit, a little bit about drawbacks of velocity-based training? Yeah, well, one of the drawbacks is that uh, there's cost, mm-hmm. uh, the cost that's involved. Mm-hmm. Um, that can lead, and it also can lead to more of the uh, the effort being, uh, you know, put on you a greater workload to look at some of the things. If you've got some some systems that are less expensive, mm-hmm. uh, they won't do the one RM predictions and some of the different things that you'll have to go out, write it down, and calculate it through Excel. Right. So there's a that's definitely a disadvantage. Now, if you, you don't want that, that's, that's fine. Uh, depending on the system, uh, you've got to make sure that you've got a vertical line with the linear position transducers. Right. Accelerometers, that's not a big deal. Um, but let's, let's, uh, while we're, we're on that, the speeds that we went over earlier, all of my work has been done with linear position transducer. Right. 
Okay. Now, accelerometers, some units give the same measurement, some don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not necessarily that the ones that aren't giving exactly the same as what a, a gym aware or whatever gives. I'm not saying they're wrong. It's just that maybe they're different and mm-hmm. that the slope of the line is just it's it's different. So it's just a different device. You're going to have to measure out your own stuff that way. Um, uh, another disadvantage is if you throw everybody in on it, you get the guys that are dogging things, right? <laughs> And whenever somebody is not training hard, um, they're trying to game the system a little bit, that's a definite disadvantage. Right. And quite honestly, they're, whenever we made people have to achieve the velocity-based training, mm-hmm. made it something that they had to earn the right to use, uh, in the several years that we trained athletes, I can only think of one person that we actually had to demote. Mm-hmm. That they got up there and they were like, oh, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, in some other areas that uh, I get overly excited about things and right. I put everybody on velocity. And I had a lot of kids that were just like, oh, well, I guess this means I don't have to use as much weight today. And right. so then that led to struggles and arguments and things to the point where I cut it out of uh, many of the exercises, except for the ones that that athlete happened to like. And they would actually go hard on. They happen to be a leader on the team. So if right. their dog, if they're bad mouthing it, then it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a disadvantage. Um, and you know, the, I guess one of the other disadvantages is having to use your head and use some cognitive thought. If you've got somebody who hits their one RM on a squat, we had somebody who was extremely explosive, uh, extremely powerful, and extremely strong. But their one RM on squat happened in the uh, upper point fours, right? So almost point two over what everybody else did. I don't think that that's uh, you know you've got to know that you've got to change things. Mm-hmm. Also, a disadvantage is this is not a beginner's tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, with beginners, with uh, with advanced lifters, right? There's going to be little di- tiny little deviations away from a regression line. Mm-hmm. So 40 to 50% might be this slope, 50 to 60 this, 60 to 70 this, 70 to 80. But it all fits pretty tight around a regression line. Mm -hmm. Some of these kids, whenever they are untrained, not untrained, what's the word I'm looking for? They're not elite. uh, They're not, they they don't have a good training age. Okay. Right? uh, Unexperienced. Maybe they're pansies. Okay. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. But they all of a sudden they get up to around 80% and then they just stop there or they drop off significantly for the next one because they don't know how to grind. Mm -hmm. You can't use VBT on those people. Right. Because if there's not going to be that straight relationship, Uh, you know, I guess one of the advantages to velocity is, uh, Kind of a disadvantage too, but um, there is one story that I've got about a, a women's soccer player that we were doing one RM testing and we had the tendos out just because, right? <laughs> just because I wanted to, to look at it, and then unfortunately my uh, computer crashed and I don't know what uh, I, I that data was not recovered, uh, <laughs> so that 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 sucks. But it was only like six people anyway, seven people. Well, she told me her one RM. And it was at like 0.5 meters per second. And I was like, okay, look, here's the deal. Here's where 1RM happens. This 0.5 meters per second, you're about 80%. So, yeah, you know, it's getting heavy, but you got a lot more in the tank. She's like, oh, really? I'm like, 
Yeah, yeah, you you the stuff will get start slower, it'll grind, it'll hurt a little bit, but you got more in the tank, you know, uh you know, you pop point two six is where you're gonna tap out at. And she got back down there and, and went up to point two six. Now if you don't know these sorts of things because I knew she was an elite, man. She wasn't fast. She couldn't <laughs> jump. You know, this wasn't that she was a freak. Uh, it was that she just didn't know. So yeah. you could utilize that as a tool, but then also you've got to realize uh, you got to realize what's what's going on. Right. So that's a disadvantage and an advantage at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and then the disadvantage, actually, one major one that I, I very ever rarely uh, mention. Because I never think about it because I always know that I'm the coach and I coach technique mm-hmm. is that a lot of coaches have the tendency to only focus in on the velocity rather than how the exercise is being performed. And whenever that is done, you do a disservice to yourself, to the program and to the athlete. So that is a major disadvantage of VBT is not right. focusing on technique. Right. Right. So what is your go to device? Just my go to device is Jim aware of the X axis correction. Uh, is it for me is the the reason to do it mm-hmm. uh, you know with the the tendos uh, before we knew about you know yeah it's a line right right well we were letting guys one guy would be way to the maybe uh, 30 <laughs> centimeters up and then the second guy was 30 centimeters back and then the third guy was right, right in the middle so then we were having once we figured out why the speeds were so different even though they look the same and we're having to met, you know move the device for every set got to be a big pain in the ass right so that x-axis correction was huge for me plus the fact that it uh, it stores the data on uh, on the server for you now full full disclosure I'm on their sport advisory board because I like the device that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that that's my, my go-to. Uh, and uh, it's not saying that any others are bad. You know, Tendo is fantastic. Mm-hmm. X-axis correction is lacking on it. Uh, uh, there's uh, an open barbell. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Another linear position transducer. Mm-hmm. No X-axis correction. Uh, I am just not familiar enough with accelerometers to... Mm-hmm. to Uh, give thumbs up to one or the, over the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that some have improved over the years, and mm-hmm. when over a few years ago, I tested a couple that were uh, were not good, but they've improved. Mm. Nice. So, and I haven't tested them since then because it's like, yeah, why? You know, I've got what I'm going with. Right. Totally agree. Yeah. Okay. Last thing. Uh, I don't want to take your time anymore. So, where can people find you, Brian? Uh, they can find me at Twitter, uh, at jbryanman, B-R-Y-A-N-M-A-N-N. I'm uh, one of those weird guys. I'm, I'm easy to get a hold of on there. Uh, Facebook, uh, it's look for the dude, the Brian Man with the big red birthmark on his face. Uh, Instagram, I'm, I'm on Instagram, but I'm not really on there that much unless I'm at a conference cool. or something. And I'm using that uh, Hootsuite or something like that <laughs> to put it out across uh, everything. Um uh, You know, they can find me at the, uh, if they're in the States, most of the NSCA conferences. I'm at uh, the, the definitely the National and Coaches Conference. Uh, I'm the state director for Missouri. So excluding this year because our daughter is going to be born two weeks before the conference. So I'm not going to be made. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. <laughs> got number two. I've got proof my equipment works. Uh, <laughs> Then uh, you know they can they can definitely find me there. But social media uh, is easy. Uh, my email address is man j as in James b as in Brian at health h e a l t h dot Missouri m i s s o u r i dot edu. You can get me on there. I will say uh, 
if I don't email you back, and I think we might have had this problem, uh, <laughs> there were I, I'm a part of four departments. So you know I'm I'm a, a professor in department of physical therapy. I've got a, an appointment uh, as the director of research for the Human Performance Institute, right. which links me in with the Missouri Orthopedic Institute, and I've still got a uh, ties over with athletics. So anytime there's emails that are sent out for department wide, well, that's four different things that I'm getting, oh. and a couple of the departments who are going to remain nameless, everybody thinks they have to reply all. Right. So there's many <laughs> days that I'll get on any any given day I'm getting well over a hundred. On many days I crack three hundred. So sometimes I miss emails just because I'm sitting here at my computer like, oh, God, and I'm just hitting the delete button. So long story short, I, it took forever explaining that to get to this. If I don't get back to you within three days, email me a second time yeah. because chances are that I deleted it or I just straight <laughs> missed it because it's inside of all these other people saying, yay, me too, thanks. And uh, I just get pissed and I'm hit delete too fast. But um, you can always get me on Twitter. I'm... Uh, while I'm busy, I'm not very popular, uh, <laughs> and it's really easy. Sometimes people will be like, hey, did you get my email? And then I'll go search uh, search mm. and find it. Sometimes I don't because I've got a two-year-old as well now, and uh, sometimes she gets a hold of my phone. And uh, <laughs> I've got a couple of emails that are lost into ether space right now because uh, pro- she probably put them in some folder or sent it on to somebody else. I have no idea where it's at. It wasn't in my deleted. It wasn't in my inbox. It wasn't in my sent. She, she's going to be a computer genius one day. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Brian, for this talk. It's been awesome. And uh, have a great rest of the day. Uh, my pleasure. You too. All right, guys. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you like this, you can rate us. You can share this with your friends. And if you have a question, go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Anchor, anywhere you can find us. Drop us a DM and we'll try to answer it when we can.